Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey there, it's not even Thanksgiving yet, and guess who took off early for it? Wheeler. Can you believe it? Of course you can believe it. As usual, I'm the one left holding the bag here. Jason Whiteley with you for this episode of Yolitics. Before the end of the year, Wheeler has promised to share the secret with me of how he has gotten so much time off in 2022. I've got to say, I am envious of it. But even without Wheeler, let's get to it here. You know, in last week's episode, the Greg Abbott campaign explained how he handily won that third term as governor of Texas. They pulled the curtain back on their big win. This episode, though, it's going to be all about Beto O'Rourke. For starters, what's next for him? He's been around, it seems like, for five, six years all over Texas politics. But he's 0 for 3 now in his campaigns for higher office. Remember, he lost the Senate campaign in 2018 to Ted Cruz by a tiny margin, 2.5%. He uh, ran for president in 2020 and dropped out of that race. And then he lost the uh, most recent run he had for governor by about 11 points. So the question is now, what happened to his campaign for governor? How did Greg Abbott defeat O'Rourke? by about the same percentage as Abbott defeated the little-known 2018 gubernatorial candidate named Lupe Valdez. So we called a guy named Jason Lee. He's the deputy campaign manager for O'Rourke. He said he was unwinding the gubernatorial campaign. He was paying off bills and really kind of tying it off. But Jason agreed to give us an inside look at what happened with the Beto campaign. And our first question was simple. You know, looking back at it, looking back over the last 12 months or so, now that you've had time to digest what happened on election day, what do you wish you would have done differently? Looking back, now that you've had a little time to digest uh, the campaign, what do you wish you would have done differently? Well, thanks, Chase, for having me. Um... You know, again, you know, we addressed this a little bit earlier in the week um, with an 11 point margin. There's no one thing that you look at and say, if we'd only done that one thing, the, the outcome would have been different. Um, you know, the stick, the secretary of state is uh, has uh, unofficial results. We're waiting on the official results. Uh, we're going to do a lot of analysis on who turned out and who didn't. Obviously, our goal was to expand the electorate. Uh, it doesn't seem like we were able to expand it enough to give ourselves a chance to win. So we want to look at look at that and what we could have done better to reach those uh, lower propensity or less likely voters and bring them into the electoral process this time around. Um, we'll look at resource allocation. You know, it's a big, big state, and there's a lot of things to get done to win a statewide election. You need to invest in your base areas, which for Democrats is obviously our major metros. You need to make sure that you're doing enough to, to, to pick up votes in those swing areas. And then in areas where you're not strong, you want to hold down the margins and trying to allocate resources across those three different. I mean, there's more than that, but those let's say those three different priorities can be difficult. Um, and, you know, frankly, uh, going up against a governor who started with about $50 million on hand, who looks like spent about $140 million resources is always a question. Uh, what could we have done to try to bring in more resources to have a, give us ourselves a little bit of better chance to to compete in some of those markets? Uh, but ultimately, you know, I'm proud of the race that we ran. Uh, I'm proud of what uh, we attempted to do. I'm proud of Beto uh, for standing up uh, and 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 taking this monumental challenge on. Uh, and I'm proud of all the, the the millions of votes that we got, the hundreds of you know the tens of thousands of volunteers uh, that were part of this campaign. 
Uh, and so now we're just we're looking to the future to learn from this and, and, and get better. Do Democrats in Texas have a reason to be optimistic? It's been 20, boy, almost 30 years since, yeah. since they uh, won a race for governor, but they haven't won a statewide race in more than two and a half decades. Yeah, I think I think I think they have real reason to be optimistic. You know, it's funny because I'm I'm looking at a, a lot of the press coverage after the race, and there's this narrative that well, this concludes you know the, the democratic hopes for flipping the state. This is the 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 announcement. This is the funeral, and it just it, it seems to uh, misunderstand our recent history. Uh, in 2014, for example, Wendy Davis courageously ran against Greg Abbott. Uh, raised at that time was considered a significant amount of resources uh, and came up short, lost by 20 points. Uh, and as the top of the ticket, right, this is the highest Democratic uh, uh, vote getter for that cycle. And then in 2018, four years later, Beto O'Rourke uh, uh, earned more votes than any Democrat in Texas history, raised more money than any Senate candidate in American history to that date, and lost by two and a half points. That's that's a 16 uh, and, a, and a half point swing in four years. So you fast forward to 2022, we lose as the stop as the top of the ticket. Uh, Beto O'Rourke running for governor, we lose by 11 points. We've already seen in four years a 16 and a half point swing on Democratic vote share. I mean, on the net margin. So we had the same swing in 2026. We win the election. The, the size of the Texas electorate uh, and the diversity of the electorate makes significant swings between cycles uh, very possible. And when we think about the national, uh, you know, the national wins, right? In 18, we had the wind at our back. Democrats picked up, you know, 30 plus seats in the House of Representatives nationally. Uh, we had a, a, a backlash against President Trump. The issue environment was completely different. In 2018, the biggest issue on the border was family separation. Crime was at record lows. There was no inflation. And we picked up uh, a number of seats in the Texas House of uh, uh, the, the Texas Ledge. Uh, and again, Beto had the performance that I just said. There's no reason to think that we can't see significant swings in our direction within the next two to four years. And we've seen it before. And based on the margin that we were able to hold this time, we see the same swing that gives Texas that gives Texas Democrats an opportunity to win statewide. And so by fighting this election cycle, by not letting go of the rope, by keeping that margin at 10 and 11 and not 20, like they had in Florida, uh, we put ourselves in position uh, in the next two to four years to make a significant uh, uh, a swing back in our direction uh, and win statewide. So I actually feel very good about where we held up, given the, the recent history of how the swings uh, in our state have occurred. But doesn't it all depend on on who Democrats can get to actually run? I mean, Wendy Davis was from North Texas. She was already predefined early on as, you know, quote, abortion Barbie uh, because of her filibuster uh, in, in 2014. Then you had Lupe Valdez, who was a much less known candidate, the former right. Dallas County Sheriff. And then you have Beto O'Rourke, this, this national figure that comes out. If Democrats can't get another, you know, Beto O'Rourke uh, to run in four years, uh, is, is all that work going to be worth it then? Well, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's, again, it's important to look at the context. You know, I think when Beto O'Rourke announced that he was running sometime in 2017 for Senate against Ted Cruz, there weren't a lot of people uh, calling him a national figure. There weren't a lot of people saying, oh, uh, you know, th th this is the greatest candidate uh, they've had in a generation. Right. That came to fruition through his hard work, through his 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 efforts and through his uh, innate talent. 
Uh, and there's no reason to believe that we will not produce other candidates who are able to capture the electorate in their own ways. You know, Wendy Davis was a talented candidate. It was a difficult year uh, and there were some other things going on. Uh, but there was not a lot of coordination and planning that produced a better work. Better work decided to get in the race pretty much on his own. We need to, as Democrats, be a lot more coordinated um, and a lot more proactive in making sure that we are recruiting candidates into these races in the next two to four years, that it's not random, that we look at the playing field, we look at the, all the talented Democratic office holders that are out there and get some of them to uh, you know, take advantage of the opportunities. And Beto's career uh, in politics, uh, we don't know what the future holds, but he still is a young man uh, at 50 years old and has a major future in front of him, either as a candidate or a validator or a fundraiser. Uh, and so he's still going to be on the team at, at the very minimum, helping and supporting other Democrats run statewide. We've learned so much over the last eight years about what we need to do to compete statewide. We significantly improved our voter data on the Democratic side. Uh, we've, 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 we've recruited, uh, you know, tens of thousands of volunteers who now have history going out and knocking doors in the electoral cycle. We've built a coordinated platform this time around that, that, that was light years ahead of anything we had before coordinating across the different PACs and organizations across the state, allocating resources to make sure that we could hold down ballot seats when we saw some of those slipping away. And so if we build on what we've built and we're more proactive about, about recruiting candidates, taking the lessons that we've learned and then relying on what will inevitably be uh, a, a better cycle for Democrats, we have a real chance to win, again, in the next two to four years, the best chance we've ever had. Jason, I don't think a lot of people realize that that kind of the, the backbone, the meat and potatoes of a campaign are the voter database that you guys create, are the, the volunteer database that you guys have, the phone numbers, the texts, all kinds of stuff like that, the donor database, which is which is massive. What happens to all this now that, that, that you know, the Beto campaign has acquired? Is, is this handed off to the state party? Do you guys hang on to it and wait to see if any candidates emerge and try to share it with them? Or, or, or I know you don't flush it down the drain. It's way too valuable, man. No, it, it really is valuable. And, and again, it's credit to Beto because, uh, as I said earlier in the week, you know, there are a lot of different ways to run a campaign. Uh, and Beto gave us the mandate to say, do every single thing you can to win this time but do it in a way where you're producing assets and resources that can be handed off to future Democrats uh, running. And also make sure you're sharing that data in real time so that any Democrat running alongside us in 2022 will have access to that same data, right? And they don't have to pay for it and do all the things that we're able to do as a larger campaign. And they're able to use that to, 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 to do as well as they can. And that happened this time around. Uh, and we're gonna make sure that that data continues to live within the Democratic ecosystem make it available to candidates up and down the ballot, grow it and improve it. We're not just gonna sit on our laurels, laurels. There are things we can do to enhance that data as we get to the next election cycle. Um, and so you're exactly right, Jason, that this is not going anywhere. Uh, and all Democrats running uh, across the state are gonna be better for some of these investments that were made. Beto O'Rourke is 0 for 3 now in, in major races. He ran for Senate and lost by just a small margin, ran for president and dropped out of that uh, race of the Democratic nomination in 2020 and now uh, for, for governor. W what happens next to Beto O'Rourke? Is, is, would, would he run for office again? Is he still active behind the scenes in Democratic politics? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I hope so. You know, I can't speak for him. I know that uh, Texans and Democrats in Texas owe Beto uh, a great debt uh, for, uh, for all he's done for the state over the last five years. Um, he's brought so much energy to our 
state and our party. He's brought resources. Uh, he's engaged thousands of people in the process who weren't engaged before. Uh, and he's been a voice, uh, I think, for Texas values, for what many of us believe in. Um, and so that voice is too important to uh, to see. We need that voice uh, in whatever uh, capacity that he's willing to uh, participate. Uh, we, we need him involved. And there's just so many things that he can do uh, to make uh, our state better and to help uh, the Democratic Party. And knowing Beto and his commitment uh, and how he understands history and the kind of the long-term struggles uh, that realize change, he's not going anywhere. Uh, and I look forward to working with him wherever I can. Jason, you and, and Nick, the campaign manager, and uh, Chris Evans, the uh, communications director, you all been with Beto O'Rourke for a long time. What, what was it like after the event on Tuesday night in El Paso when he addressed supporters? What was it like when, when he met with you guys later that evening or the following day? Can, can you describe that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the, uh, you know, obviously, it was, you know, the initial reaction is disappointment. You know, you 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 do this because you want to make a difference in people's lives. And 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 there are many ways to do that. But one of the best ways is to win the election and, and be able to govern and, and change policies that that improve the outcomes for Texans, allow them to live to their greatest potential. Uh, we gave everything we had. We didn't get that done. And that's always a disappointment and an emotional, uh, uh, you know, realization. However, again, you know, Beto has been uh, deeply immersed in the history of our country and our state. And he's seen how many of these struggles, whether it be for voting rights or women's rights, have not uh, been, 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 been won in, in a year or two years or one senior election. They've been won over decades and decades. And the work that was unrealized in one period was essential to the ultimate realization of those rights or those uh, liberties or those outcomes later on. And so Beto sees himself as, as one leg of a marathon, a critical, important leg. And he's proud of the leg that he ran uh, and he knows that his leg will inspire many Texans after uh, to continue that 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 race. And he was surrounded by people who were able to tell him and affirm that for him, younger people younger than himself, who who, who have been so inspired by what he's done and will go on and work uh, for for a long time. And and he's reminded of all the people he met as he traveled the state, every part of the state, who were inspired, who will go on and do the same thing. And so I think that that was what really. Um, you know, burnished him and, and gave him um, some comfort uh, that that this was not in vain, that a lot has been done and achieved in this race uh, and a lot more will be achieved moving forward. Does he have does Beto O'Rourke have a role to play in the future of democratic politics in Texas? Oh, certainly, certainly. Again, um, you know, his ability to, to motivate and inspire people, his ability to bring resources to the state, you know, which is really important. I mean, as you know, on, on the state side, we're uncapped, which means candidates can raise unlimited amounts of money. Uh, with the Republican Party in power, they're able to leverage a lot of donors who are interested in making investments that help further their interest in the state, right? Um, but I do want to note that uh, Greg Abbott, uh, to his credit, is probably one of the best fundraisers in American political in the American political landscape today. I don't see another fundraiser of his caliber anywhere in the Republican Party on their bench. I don't think they'll ever have the level of resources that he was able to garner, at least in the near future. Rick Perry never did it. George W. Bush never did it. I don't see anyone else in the landscape. So I think that that money disparity is going to be a lot uh, less with him uh, potentially pursuing other things. But Beto's ability to raise resource to help close that gap 
his ability to motivate and inspire supporters to get involved, to volunteer, uh, and his ability to communicate, uh, communicate to Democrats, but also all Texans, our vision uh, for this state are really, really important. Uh, and we want him to play a role, uh, and we need him to play a role in all of those three things. Jason, you mentioned fundraising that, that Greg Abbott has just seemingly, seemingly perfected on the Republican side. Yeah. What else do you think that the Abbott campaign did right this election? You know, I think they, they ran a very disciplined campaign. Um, you know, the governor had uh, a number of liabilities, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, abortion rights, uh, women's rights was a liability for him, uh, having passed one of the most extreme, uh, uh, you know, uh, anti-abortion laws in the country. After the, the tragedy in Uvalde, I think his record on, on gun safety and protecting children in schools from mass shootings was a huge liability. Uh, but they remained disciplined, focused on the areas where they ha had advantages, focused on the areas where they were strong, the border, uh, uh, you know, this this issue around, you know, law and order, which Republicans always have an advantage of, uh, I mean, advantage on. Um, and then this idea of inflation, you know, did a good job of being disciplined around trying to tie us to the national uh, or, or, or to the White House. Issues of inflation were highly salient to Texans. Uh, and he just did a good job of staying on message. Uh, and where he didn't have something good to say, he stayed away from it. Uh, and we give them credit for that. I think the other thing that they did very well is they used the power of the office to try to focus Texans' attention on issues, again, where they had the advantage. Operation Lone Star and all the various kind of media opportunities and messaging opportunities around that, uh, he took full advantage. Uh, and then the, the busing of migrants to Democratic cities, he engineered that in the middle of the election, drew so much media attention on it, crowded out other issues, and made it difficult for us to get a similar bandwidth on the issues that were important to us. And then again, the fundraising, just uh, consistently uh, through the beginning, uh, uh, you know, of, of this term to the throughout the entire election, you know, he never stopped fundraising. Uh, and, you know, we we spent a lot of time with Texans. We spent a lot of time talking to Texans. That didn't give us as much time for the fundraising as Greg Abbott used. Uh, but those resources clearly paid off for him. Yeah, he, he he did clearly use the the power of the office to 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 get earned media uh, out of this. Is there a lesson for Democrats in in what in what Abbott did uh, in November? I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, I, I you know, I, I mean, do, do, do you do you look at it, Jason and say, hey, we should do that next time. We should do this next time. I think there's always things you look at that you say, you know what, that that was a smart uh, move or that was a smart maneuver. We should think about is there mm -hmm. some kind of, um, you know, is there something we can take from that? But, but what I would want to uh, the flag, though, is that. Again, th this cycle was was very favorable to Republicans. You had a, a unpopular Democratic president, the White House. You had a number of issues that were favorable to Republicans nationwide, inflation, border, et cetera. The reason why there wasn't a red wave in the House and Senate was because of candidate quality. Republicans ran some really bad candidates in a lot of these states and a lot of these congressional uh, seats. But where they had good candidates, they did really, really well. And one of the areas where they had good candidates, and by good, I just mean people with their own identities, their own brands, people who weren't, you know, election deniers or conspiracy theorists, but just kind of solid Republican candidates. They did extraordinary. Uh, uh, Governor DeWine in Ohio beat Trump by 26 points. Sununu in New Hampshire beat Trump by almost 17 points. DeSantis in Florida beat Trump by almost six, by over 16 points, won Miami-Dade County, right, uh, and won the Latino vote, right, which is why he's being heralded as the, as the future of the Republican Party. Greg Abbott didn't perform nearly as well as other Republican governors this cycle. He only outperformed Trump by five points. 
Uh, he said he was going to win the Latino vote in Texas. He lost it. He said he was going to win South Texas. He lost that. Uh, he said that, you know, they could take Harris County with an unprecedented $15 million to try to take Harris County from Democrats. They expanded the court in Democratic majority in Harris County. So he's not necessarily being cited in the same breath as some of these other governors as, as a presidential candidate, because his performance, frankly, while good, uh, was not nearly as good as some of his peers. And I think that's a testament, one, to the race that we ran and the, comp the, the competitive race that we ran and the fact that Texas is not like those states. And that's another reason why I think we have to be more, have more cause for optimism, because we could have let go of the rope. Texas could have been a 20 point loss, just like Florida, but it wasn't. And so, uh, you know, as much credit as we want to give the governor's campaign, they ran a good campaign. I think we also need to look at the fact that, you know, other people did better. Uh, it was a favorable cycle uh, and, and, and they weren't able to accomplish everything they wanted to. Jason, you told reporters the other day, including myself, that uh, speaking of Beto, you said that Texas needed a champion at this moment where we really faced a risk as Democrats in this state is moving backwards. Beto stepped up and he fought as hard as anybody could fight. I hope that will be acknowledged, you said, and remembered as we moved on from this election. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, look, I, I, don't, I, I think I said it that, you know, um, if, if you're Beto O'Rourke in the summer of 2021 and you're talking to any national consultant, or local consultant, maybe they're telling you don't run, right? It's not a good year. There's going to be a backlash against Biden. Greg Abbott already has 50 million on hand. Wait two years. Do the rematch against Ted Cruz, or wait four years. Maybe Greg Abbott will be gone, and you can run in an open seat. But Beto knew that we needed a champion now. We need a champion this cycle. We couldn't just let the governor, uh, you know, uh, slide back into office after uh you know the most uh uh you, you know uh the, the abortion ban that that he passed the, the permitless carry bill that he passed the, the 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 voting restrictions that were passed um uh you know failure to do anything to make our children more safe in schools uh a, a foster care uh and cps system in shambles uh failure to expand medicaid millions of texas going without health care 41st in education we needed a champion now, if nothing else, to make sure that Texans had a choice uh, to move ourselves in a different direction. And so Beto, against the odds, against the consultant advice, stepped up and was that champion. And again, inspired millions of Texans, left our party much better than it would have been had he not ran, and put us in position in the next two to four years to be very competitive, even when statewide, if we have the same kind of swing as we've had historically in this state from midterm to midterm. Let me ask about rural Texas. You guys made a point again in the campaign to visit all 254 counties across the state. Democrats just get trounced in, in rural Texas. Yeah. Was that worth was that worth it? Because the same results seem to be repeated again. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something, uh, you know, first I'll say that, um, you know, Beto believed and I think we believed as well that uh, in order to govern, uh, in order to be the governor, you have to know the state. You have to know the people in the state. And the people don't all live in DFW. They don't all live in Harris County. They don't all live in San Antonio. They live all over. They live in East Texas. They live in the Panhandle, West Texas. And it was important for Beto to be with those Texans, to hear from them, to learn from them, if he was going to be their governor. So that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, Beto's presence in these areas um, was frankly, one of the only tools that we had at our disposal to reach these voters. Given the size of the state, the, the expensive uh, nature of the media markets, our campaign was really focused on our other, uh, through our other programs in the major uh, 
markets where we had most of our voters trying to get those voters out. And, uh, and, and so Beto's presence in these rural areas is one of the few things our campaigns had the resource to do to touch them. Uh, but if you look at our resource allocation, we were allocating a little bit differently. The governor uh, spent significant resources communicating in these rural areas, you know, after Beto would leave uh, on radio, on TV, uh, through all kinds of means. And that obviously hurt us, right? Because Beto couldn't be everywhere um, at, at every time. But it wasn't, and the final thing I'll say is it wasn't either or. Um, despite Beto's presence in these rural areas, he spent a ton of time in the major markets uh, talking to voters in different neighborhoods. In fact, we got a lot of coverage uh, about how Beto would go into neighborhoods that candidates hadn't been to in 30 years or statewide candidates hadn't been in 20 years. And then in the Valley, uh, in South Texas, Beto spent a ton of time in places like McAllen, Harlingen, Brownsville, uh, the urban centers of the Valley, uh, Laredo, uh, and also spots, rural you know, spots in between. Uh, and I think that presence and that long-term organizing that Beto began uh, in a Senate race and through Power by the People is why we didn't uh, let go of the rope in South Texas, why we were able to hold those congressional seats uh, and why we were able to win uh, those areas. So Beto spent time everywhere, uh, but he wasn't going to ever turn his back on Texans uh, who lived in, 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 in the rural areas, despite the fact that we knew that we weren't going to get a ton of those votes, uh, but we had to try. Jason, speaking of South Texas and rural areas, I want to ask about Uvalde because, you know, every time we saw Beto over the summer and in the fall, he always had that maroon uh, hat on, baseball cap that said Uvalde on it. It was a primary issue after the, the massacre that happened at Robb Elementary back in May. But when it came down to it at the end, uh, Governor Abbott ended up winning that county there. It, it, it shocked people on the outside of your campaign, right. like myself. What, what was your reaction to the loss there? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, um, um, you know, I I had an opportunity to go with Beto to Uvalde when he when he first went out uh, went there uh, two days after the tragedy uh, at Rob Elementary, and from that moment on, um, Beto uh, had a deep developed a deep commitment to the people in that community and particularly to the families uh, and survivors of the tragedy. Uh, and he and our campaign maintained a close relationship with those families throughout the very end. Uh, some of them were featured in advertisements for our campaign. They actually came to us. They wanted an opportunity to have a platform to be able to advocate uh, and, and, and for, for, for what they believed in, for making sure that this tragedy didn't happen to other children across the state. And we were honored to give them that platform to let them share their message and tell the stories about their children. Um, Uvalde is a conservative county. Uh, Uvalde, the, the city of Uvalde is only, you know, is not the county. It's, it's, it's one, you know, part of the county. There's a whole bunch of other aspects to the county. Uh, and so we weren't shocked by the outcome in the county, but our focus was more so um, on the families themselves and the, and the, and the, and the victims of, 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 of the shooting. And uh, we heard a lot of feedback from them uh, after the election where Despite us losing, uh, they were proud to have been a part of this campaign. They were proud, you know, they, they were appreciative of the opportunity uh, and their relationship between Beto and those families will persist. Uh, and so that's something that I'll always take with me. What have Democrats been asking you since, since the election? Mm -hmm. What's next? You know, I think one of the things that we, has plagued us as a party in this state is just not not enough continuity of, of, of thought and planning and strategy. You know, we have an election, we have the outcome, people go to lick their wounds, maybe they focus on other stuff. And then, you know, we try to come together shortly before the next election and figure out what we're gonna do. And by then it's often too late 
to really get a coordinated strategy together. And we just got to hope that someone wanted to run. And that's really been one of our Achilles heels. And thank goodness we've still been able to make gains even despite that. But this time around, it's been different. You know, people have been calling. Donors have been calling, uh, you know, contrary to what some people might think. And everyone's kind of aligned that, hey, we can't stop. Let, let's get right back on the saddle. Let's get in these rooms. Let's start meeting. Let's figure out what we need to do for the next election cycle, what candidates need to be recruited, what resources need to be brought to bear. And, you know, I sit at the intersection of a lot of different factions or, or groups within the Democratic Party as, you know, being on the Beto campaign. And despite whatever disagreements may exist on exactly what happened or what needs to happen next, the one commonality was, hey, let's get to work. And I think a lot of folks are going to be willing to sit down and work with other folks in the party. Uh, and we're going to be more coordinated and more strategic than we've ever been. And starting from where we are, like I said, I think that's why we're going to have a huge opportunity in the next two cycles uh, to actually win the state. Is there already talk underway inside the Texas Democratic Party to, to start working on 2026? Yeah, I think there's, there, there's talk. Yeah, there's definitely talk to start working uh, on 2026, 2024. Uh, you know, a four-year strategy definitely makes sense, just given how long, you know, what how long certain things take. Uh, but yeah, th those conversations began almost immediately because uh, we know that the votes are there. Uh, you know, we've seen it. Uh, again, Beto got within two and a half points and didn't nearly have the level of sophistication, the same, the, the voter data that we now have. A similar cycle uh, with that kind of momentum, a strong candidate, plus some of the uh, adv advances that we've made, puts us in great position to win statewide. So there's no there's no time to waste. Who would you like to see run in four years? Anybody out there, top of your list? You know, I, I really, you know, uh, I haven't thought about, I mean, I've thought about it, uh, but there's a number of great um, candidates. So I haven't, you know, made a decision personally on, on who I would support, but I think we have to let the process play out a little bit. We need to see who's interested uh, we need to vet them and see kind of what their capacity is, what their, uh, you know, ability to raise resources is. And so I think there's some steps that we need to go through. Uh, but the good news is what I'm hearing uh, is that there are a lot number of office holders, people who actually hold an office now uh, who are considering strongly considering running in 2024 and 2026. And that's often what we've been been missing is that people willing to risk uh, their seat that they held and actually run. Having people who've been on a ballot have some name recognition is really helpful because you're starting from, from from a better platform. And so hearing some of those names saying, hey, I'm really thinking about it has been heartening. Hey, before I let you go, Jason, I want to ask you about Donald Trump announcing his uh, run for 2024 as well. If, if President Biden decides over the holidays that he does not want to run again, um, what kind of position does that leave Democrats in? Um, you know, it leaves us in a very interesting position, right? <laughs> uh, um, kind of somewhat unprecedented. We had a situation like this and in 68 with LBJ. Uh, but, um, you know, there, there, there's there's a number of, of strong Democrats around the country, many of whom just came off pretty successful, uh, uh, you know, midterm cycles. Uh, and so I think we'll have a robust primary with a number of different voices. Uh, we'll produce a very strong candidate uh, that can that can basically, you know, challenge uh, Trump's failures in office. Uh, there are many failures that he's had and many failures that he's had since he left office. And so if Donald Trump is a Republican nominee, I think all of us in the Democratic Party feel very good that we'll be able to uh, produce a nominee who will be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe, uh, and make the case for Democratic governors, because we just saw uh, that when these Trump-esque candidates were running statewide across the country, even in a year that was favorable to Republicans, many of them couldn't get it done. 
and they couldn't get it done in the very states that Donald Trump would need in order to win the presidency. So it'll be interesting, but but we definitely feel good about the type of candidates we'll be able to uh, uh, bring to bear for a primary and then ultimately the nominee. Jason, good insight, man. I appreciate the time. No, thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. You know, an interesting takeaway from Jason Lee, I thought, was that Texas Democrats should be optimistic about the future. Now, here's the one thing they should be optimistic about, and that is data. They haven't really had data in the past, and that is very important. The party hasn't had it in 30-plus years. Republicans use data to meticulously operate campaigns. This is data on who is likely to vote, who recently registered to vote, info on volunteers, phone numbers, for, for everybody, for voters, for volunteers, for all kinds of folks. This is priceless information that O'Rourke has gathered over the last four or five years that he's been so involved in statewide politics here. But the big question, I think, is what does Beto O'Rourke do next? Jason Lee, you just heard him there say Beto is not going away. He's clearly too good of a fundraiser, too good of an organizer, and really a force for Texas Democrats. So not sure what role he is going to be in in the future, but you really should expect to see him again in some role. So I hope you got something out of that, looking at both gubernatorial campaigns over the last two weeks. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving as well. Try not to get pinned down in a political conversation over the holidays with any relatives. You know, our next episode is going to address just that, and I promise Wheeler will be back for it. Hope you can join us for it next week. Until then, have a good one.